Well, good evening everyone, and so uh, nice to be with you again, and a real privilege to open the Word of God. Um, could you turn please to Mark chapter 13? Now, I didn't know until yesterday that um, you've been looking at Matthew and you've just looked at chapters 24 and 25. Um, if I had known in advance, I might have chosen a different passage of scripture, but I thought, no, I'll just carry on and go with it. Maybe it's something that the Lord wants us to hear. Because, of course, uh, Mark chapter 13 is what's known as the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse because the Lord Jesus gave it while he was on the Mount of Olives. And of course, it's in the last week of the Lord's earthly life here with us. So for us as Christians, it's a particularly poignant piece of scripture and of teaching from the Lord Jesus. Because, you know, in just, well, three days or so, the Lord Jesus will be dying for us um, on the cross. And so it's a very lovely piece of scripture to look at from that point of view. Now, of course, uh, Matthew 24 and 25 are parallel passages. They deal with the the same sermon on the Mount of Olives. Um, Matthew's is slightly expanded. It takes over the two chapters. And uh, Luke chapter 21 is also a parallel passage and deals with the same event in the life of the Lord Jesus. So it's interesting to look at them as well, but we'll concentrate mostly in Mark uh, chapter 13. Um, maybe we should read it together. I'm going to go through it section by section rather than reading the whole chapter all at once. Start with the first four verses, and I've called this section the questions. And he went out of the temple, and as he went out of the temple. One of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, When shall these things be, and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? (coughs) Now it's interesting the way this chapter begins. He went out of the temple. Now for the last two or three days, the Lord Jesus has been staying at Bethany uh, in the house of Martha. And he seems to me that he went, you know, day by day to the temple. And he was debating with the temple authorities. And of course, as you would expect, the Lord Jesus got the better of all of these debates. But mostly the scribes and the folk in the temple, they wouldn't soften their hearts. And as he leaves leaves the temple at the end of Matthew chapter 23, he says, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And then it says he left the temple, and I think he never went back. I think that was him leaving the temple for good. And then he, you can imagine him leaving the temple, going down into the Kidron Valley, and then up the slopes of the Mount of Olives, the mountain opposite Jerusalem. And as he's going, I imagine the disciples sort of looking at one another like this, and they're looking up at the temple. 
and it's a magnificent building and you know it just doesn't look desolate to them it was a marvellous thing now if you study these uh, chapters the gospels in fact and you look at commentaries a name you'll come across a lot is Josephus Uh, Josephus he was a Jewish historian about the same time as the apostles his life overlapped with them Um, before he was uh, an historian he was a soldier he actually took part in the rebellion against the Romans in the AD 60s but he went completely over to the Roman side he was a sort of turncoat and he went to Rome, he adopted the name of the uh, emperor's family he called himself Flavius um, uh, Josephus and eventually he came to write a number of histories which have come down to us perhaps some scholars think it was an act of contrition for his um, you know, defection to the Roman side so he wrote, amongst other things, a history of the Jewish war he wrote about the life and customs of the Jews um, so it's a very important source for us. In fact, outside of the Bible, probably that's how we know most about New Testament times through uh, Josephus. And he tells us a lot about the temple. He, he said the stones were marvellous. He said the biggest stone in the temple was the size of an articulated lorry. Well, well, actually, uh, Josephus didn't say that. He didn't, he, he didn't know about uh, articulated lorries, but he says it was 40 foot long, size of an articulated lorry in our language, and it weighs 500 tons. And you think, how would you move, how would you move a, a stone that weighed 500 tons? How would you weigh, move it even today? Josephus says that 18,000 men worked continuously in the construction of the temple it seems they cut the tops off the hills and used the stones from the tops of the hills to fill in the valleys between them and created this huge plateau on which the temple was built Herod's, it's called Herod's temple sometimes it was a bit of a vanity project for Herod so it was and um, the Bible itself tells us in John chapter 2 verse 20 it took 46 years to build that's there in, in, in John and the upper stones of the temple were magnificent they were clad in white marble some of them were clad in gold and you can just imagine the disciples looking up at the pinnacle of the temple hundreds of feet above the bottom of the valley floor and thinking to one another doesn't look desolate to me and so we come here you know into into verse 1 here and eventually one of the disciples it just says one of the disciples says to him and he doesn't of course question or contradict the Lord he just makes a kind of neutral statement which is inviting the Lord to respond to him he says master look at the manner of stones and what buildings are here He's just trying to get the Lord to um, respond to him. And the Lord says, um, he says, I tell you, Jesus says in verse 2, you see these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And so now they've climbed up the Mount of Olives and it says, Jesus sat down 
It says he was over against the temple, still looking across to the temple buildings. And uh, four of the disciples come to him privately. And the Lord Jesus, you know, a little apart from the other disciples. And the Lord Jesus um, looks up to them and there are um, Peter and James and John and Andrew, it says in verse 3. And they're they're his first four disciples. You go back to Mark chapter 1, they're the first four that he called by the Sea of Galilee. And I just wonder if for a moment the man of sorrows, you know, when he looked up and saw these four, I wonder if he just gently smiled. You know, they've come a long, long way from the sparkling Sea of Galilee, haven't they, these fishermen? And now they're, they're still perplexed and they're still troubled by this answer that the Lord Jesus has given about these stones being cast down and the temple being destroyed. And so they ask him, these four, in verse four, they say, tell us, when shall these things be and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? Or the uh, Greek word here for fulfilled, it's not the usual word for fulfilled, It means, when shall these things altogether be brought to an end? He's maybe saying, when is it going to be that these great stones and this massive building will be cast down and brought to an end? Now, of course, um, in Matthew 24, verse 3, these questions that they ask, it's a little bit more elaborate in Matthew 24, an expanded version of the questions that the disciples asked. They said, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So there were two questions, at least, asked by the disciples on that day. Um, When will the temple be cast down? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And of course the Lord Jesus in the course of the Olivet Discourse he answers both of these questions and it's a tricky thing to work out when he's speaking about one and when he's speaking about the other. So I was trying to think how to explain this and I think it's a little bit like trying to lay a carpet in a room that's too small for the carpet. So you imagine the platform here has got a nice carpet that's the right size and it fits the platform perfectly but if the the carpet was too big for the platform you'd get a bump over in this corner you know it wouldn't fit right it's alright everywhere else but not here so you get down on your hands and knees and smooth out this bump and then it bulges up somewhere else now I'm saying that the room let's say it's a carpet in a room I'm saying the room stands for your understanding The room stands for your interpretative scheme. And the carpet stands for the word of God. You see what I'm saying? I'm saying the word of God is always bigger than our tiny minds. Always beyond our understanding. And it's very difficult to try, well it's difficult for me, it's very difficult to fit all of these verses into our understanding, into our framework into the room our theology if you like is the room that the carpet stands for the word of God which is far greater and bigger than our understanding and our framework so um, what you could do is uh, you know you could 
take a carpet knife, a Stanley knife, and you could cut the carpet so that it fitted the room. But we don't have that option with the Word of God. The Word of God, you can't ignore the verses that don't fit. You can't, or you shouldn't, just gloss over them. You see what I'm saying? If it doesn't fit, what has to change, maybe, is the shape of the room. You know? So there was a man, a man called Beasley Murray. Some of you might have heard of Beasley Murray. He was a great Bible scholar of the last century. He started off, I think, as the president of Spurgeon's Bible College. Then he went across the Atlantic and he became a, a professor of exegesis in America. Beasley Murray, one of his first books was called Jesus and the Future. Subtitle, An Examination of Mark Chapter 13. And it's about 200 and something pages long. But you know, he wasn't satisfied. He didn't think he had ironed out all the lumpy bits in his interpretation of Mark chapter 13. For the next 40 years he studied it. It was his specialty. And one of his last books was called Jesus and the Last Days. Subtitle, The Interpretation of the Olivet Discourse. And that book is 500 pages long. Now, I haven't read either of these books. My only point in mentioning them is that if somebody like Beasley Murray could spend a lifetime studying the Olivet Discourse, we're not going to iron, well, I'm not going to iron out all the bumpy bits tonight. All right? What I will do is I'll suggest a, a framework uh, for understanding uh, the chapter and uh, maybe uh, point out where some of the, the harder things are uh, in the chapter. So, um, read the next section together. And the next section I've called Signs Which Are Not Signs. And that's from verses 5 to 8. Now, let's read them. So, the disciples have just asked their, their questions. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And when you shall hear of wars and rumours of wars, be ye not troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Now it's interesting, they come asking him for a sign, uh, of what the sign will be. And the Lord's first response is, watch out that nobody deceives you. And I think what the Lord is doing here, amongst other things, is he's counselling the disciples against a premature interpretation of current events. Don't uh, rush to assume that current events are signs of fulfilled prophecy or are spoken of in prophecy. You see in verse 8 he says, Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But this is not the end. These things happen in the world in this fallen world, um, in a sense, these are things that just happen. Wars, rumours of wars, you know, all the troubles of this world. 
but they're not necessarily a sign of the end. The end is not yet. Don't be troubled by them, the Lord Jesus says to the disciples. You know, when I was a, a new Christian, uh, that was be in the 1970s, there was a lot of interest in trying to interpret um, the times, what was going on in the world in the light of prophecy. It was a time of the European Economic Community. And when it was originally set up, apparently the original intention was to have um, seven countries in the European Economic Community. And a lot of people went, ah, you see, Revelation chapter 13 verse 1. Behold, I stood upon the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rise out of the sea and it had seven heads. There you go. But then, of course, by 1981, Britain and a few other countries had joined the, the economic community, and now there were ten countries. Um, and they said, oh, but it had ten crowns upon its head. Look at verse 7, I think it is. And it, it, I don't know how that strikes you, but it strikes to me as a little bit ridiculous, trying to fit in what's happening, you know, contempt now, and squeezing it and squeezing the prophecies to try and make it fit and the Lord Jesus says no there will be all these kinds of political movements and wars and all sorts of things but the end is not yet another great one was uh, when we were young was the barcode and uh, you know if you look at a barcode you'll notice that there's at the beginning the middle and the end of the barcode there's two little lines that stick down and people said, you see, 666, you can't buy or sell anything without the mark of the beast. I think that's in Revelation 13 as well. Um, but it was ridiculous, of course. The, the, the two thin lines were never, never a code for the number six. But what happens when you're a young Christian, you hear these things, they get into your head, and it can take a, a long time to get rid of them. So the Lord Jesus said to the disciples, you know, watch out, don't let anybody deceive you. Don't rush prematurely to interpret the signs. But he did warn his disciples, he said, you know, there will be false, um, and many will come in my name, he says in verse 6, saying, I am Christ and shall uh, deceive many. And of course that happened. Um, if you remember in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, uh, the apostles are brought before the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin are trying to stop them uh, preaching about the Lord Jesus and uh, they're enraged at one point this Jewish council, the Sanhedrin are enraged against the apostles they want to kill them and uh, old Gamaliel one of the great Jewish teachers he, he rabbis he stands up and he says men of Israel Take heed what you do to these men. And he sort of stops them. And he says, you know, remember Thudas who rose up with 400 men in a rebellion, claiming to be somebody great? It came to nothing. He was slain. And then after him there was Judas the Galilean. Same thing. Drew many people after him. But he likewise perished. It came to nothing. You see, false, false Christs arising to try and lead the people and making themselves out to be something great. And uh, Gamaliel tells them about this new movement under the apostles preaching the Lord Jesus. He says, if it's not of God, it will fail. 
But if it is of God, you cannot stop them. You might even be found to be opposing God. So it was going to be a very um, troublesome time uh, for the, the apostles. Uh, they will hear all these rumours of wars close at hand and wars far away. Um, but the end is not yet. The Lord Jesus says that most of these are the beginnings of sorrows. And he continues to prepare the disciples for what's to come in the next section. Um, I called it the persecution of the disciples, uh, verses 9 to 13. Let's read them. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogue ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be preached among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak, neither do ye premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and children shall rise up against parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now did you notice in verse 9, that there's a movement from a Jewish context to a Gentile one. Starts off by saying, they will deliver you up to councils. The Greek word is the Sanhedra, the great councils of the Jews. And synagogues, of course, you all recognize that as a Jewish word. They will deliver you up in the councils and in the synagogues. Starts off Jewish. And then it moves towards a more Gentile uh, flavour, towards the end of the verse. Um, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, uh, for a testimony against them. And of course when you follow through the book of Acts, this, all, this is exactly what happened, isn't it? You had, um, well we already had them in, before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5. And then if you remember the Apostle Paul in is it 2 Corinthians 11, where he's giving an account of his sufferings for the sake of Christ, he says, of the Jews, five times I received the forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. They had all this persecution in a Jewish milieu, but then it goes on. Paul was brought before governors and kings for the sake of Christ. You know, if you go through the book of Acts, Felix and Festus and King Agrippa, and eventually Paul appeals to Festus. He says, I appeal to Caesar. And uh, Festus says, then unto Caesar thou shalt go. You know, remember all these verses. And the apostle Paul is eventually, presumably, taken uh, to Rome and brought before the imperial courts. So I think it's, a, it's, it's something which the Lord Jesus was warning his disciples about that would not be an easy road that they would travel to heaven but they had to go out and preach the gospel because in verse 10 
the gospel must it must be preached to all nations you know it's going to be hard for them but they've got to do it that's the work that the Lord gave them and I suppose in a sense gives us as well uh, to do but of course there is a little sort of lumpy bit in verse 10 in the carpet it says the gospel must first be preached so you might ask before what you know what what is it that has the gospel has to be preached first but then what is it that happens second or after that how do we interpret it well here's a suggestion I think in the context thinking of what the disciples have just asked the Lord Jesus in the context what happens next is the destruction of the temple and the stones being thrown down that seems to be the most obvious thing so you see when the, when the Lord uh, Jesus spoke to them before he went back to heaven in Luke's version of the Great Commission in Acts chapter 1 he said you know you must take the gospel out you must spread the good news it's got to go out take it out preach it he says first in Jerusalem then in Judea then in Samaria and then in the uttermost parts of the earth in other words it's got to spread out to all the nations and so one way to interpret this verse is the temple will not be thrown down until the gospel message has spread out beyond the confines of the, the, the Jewish world and right out to the nations beyond in accordance, in accordance with that pattern in Acts chapter 1 and that sort of makes sense in a sense the, the visible symbol of the old covenant the temple is not going to be destroyed until it's well established that the church is a church for all nations and the gospel has gone out throughout the whole world so that's one way of, of looking at, the, at verse 10 and then of course the Lord Jesus goes on in verses 11 and 12 and 13 to let the disciples know what a rocky road they're going to lead it's not going to be easy they'll be delivered up they're not to premeditate what they shall speak because the Holy Spirit will inspire them in the moment to answer to kings and councils he warns them that how there'll be divisions within families how they will be hated for all men by all men for his sake in verse 13 but he that shall endure to the end the same shall be saved in other words the Lord Jesus is saying whoever suffers for me whoever's persecuted for me he says don't give up keep going you will be saved no one who suffers for the Lord Jesus will be lost or will ultimately suffer loss they will be saved so verses 9 to 13 the persecution of the disciples uh, let's read the next section and that would be from uh, verses 14 to 23 and I've called that the sign and the siege uh, let's read them but when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not let him that readeth understand 
Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. And let him that is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house. And let him that is in the field not turn back again for to take up his garment. But woe to them that are with child, and to them that nurse in those days. And pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. For in those days shall be affliction such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created unto this time, neither shall be. And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. And then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. For false Christs and false prophets shall arise, and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. But take ye heed, behold... I have foretold you all things. Now there's definitely a subtlety in interpreting these verses. Um, if you see in verse 14 there's a parenthesis. It says, um, let the reader understand. You see that? Um, again you get that in Revelation 13 actually. There's a similar parenthesis. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast. So it's just a little pointer that mm, there's a subtlety. We need to think about what these verses are talking about. And it's speaking about the abomination of desolation or the desolating sacrilege. Now, that term, that phrase, um, was introduced in the book of Daniel, you might uh, remember. I think it comes in... Mm, chapters 11 and 12 I think uh, it speaks about the abomination of desolation in the book of Daniel and in the experience of the Jews Daniel's prophecy when the Lord Jesus was speaking had already had a partial fulfillment so we're talking about the intertestamental period now between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New of course there's 400 years which are not covered in our Bibles but you know there's still historical uh, documents about that period including the book of Maccabees and uh, what it tells us about is um, tells us about Antiochus Epiphanes and he was a ruler who rose out of the chaos after Alexander the Great died at the end of the Greek Empire there's a bit of a chaotic period in history, which is really a way of saying I don't really understand it. But um, out of that came this ruler, a very powerful ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, he fought against Ptolemy in Egypt successfully. And on the way back from that war with Egypt, he went up against Jerusalem. All this is in the book of Maccabees. I actually looked it up. I found a, a copy of the RSV in a second-hand bookshop which had the Apocrypha in it. So I thought, I, I've never read this, um, and I still haven't, to be honest, but I have read chapter 1 of the book of Maccabees. And it, it's quite interesting to read, because you see, you know, it speaks about Alexander, the son of Philip of Macedon, and it speaks about Antiochus Epiphanes, all these people you read about in commentaries. Quite interesting to read them in name by name there. But the point is 
that when um, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, went up against Jerusalem, he built a pagan altar on top of the brazen altar in the temple precincts. And in the book of Maccabees, that is referred to as the abomination of desolation. The same words that are used in the book of Daniel. So there's already this partial uh, fulfilment in 167 BC. And so it seems, and of course that provoked the revolt of Judas Maccabeus, and that's what the book of Maccabees is all about. It seems to me what the Lord Jesus is saying is that there's going to be something rather similar to what happened in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. Something rather similar is going to happen again. What was a partial fulfilment back in those days is going to be more fully fulfilled uh, in future days. And he says, when you see that abomination of desolation standing where it ought not, he said to the disciples, flee to the mountains. It's time to, it's time to leave. And indeed it's said that um, when the Romans, uh, you know I talked about the revolt against the Romans in the AD 60s, when the Romans finally came and destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, it's said that they sacrificed to their standards in the temple precincts. Could be that that is what the Lord Jesus is saying uh, to his disciples. When you see these things happening, you know the end is so near. It's time to flee to the mountains. And he says, don't, you know, even if it's winter, don't go back to get a coat. But, you know, pray that it won't be on winter. He says it will be a terrible, terrible time. And again, Josephus tells of these times. He says that the steps to the temple were slippery with blood. He says that the streets were filled with corpses. The Lord Jesus says there's never been a time of trouble for Jerusalem like it uh, before. And then he says to his disciples, Behold, I have foretold you all things. So let's um, move on a, a little bit. Um, I know this, I'm probably raising more questions than I'm answering here, but that, that's all right. You know, we don't have to sort everything out tonight. Um, let's move on to the next section, uh, verses 24 uh, to 31. I call these the cosmological signs, that is the signs in the heavens above, uh, verses 24 to 31. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then shall he send his angels, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When a branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is near. So ye in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. 
Amen. What a wonderful Lord and Saviour we have. Speaking here as a prophet, isn't he? My words will never pass away. Fantastic, the incarnate word. Speaking the word of God to his disciples. Now, you know, I think when we read these verses, this section 24 to 31, it's very hard for us not to think of the Lord Jesus coming back in glory. Isn't that right? You know, coming in the clouds with great power and glory, as it says in verse 26. And um, it's true I haven't read either of Beasley Murray's books, but I do know that he, his opinion was that when we reached verse 24, this was where the second question starts to get answered. The first question, when will the temple be cast down? The second question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So after his 40 years of study, um, this is his conclusion. In fact, to be fair, I think that was a conclusion he had in his first book as well. Um, but it's not the only way to interpret it. You see, there's still a lumpy bit here, a lumpy bit in the carpet. Um, if this is speaking of um, the second coming of the Lord in glory, um, what does um, verse 30 mean? Don't shout out, so. <laughs> it's, uh, for, I'm sure it'll be for discussion later. What does verse 30 mean? Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. You know, because the natural reading of the chapter surely is this generation is just this generation, the generation of the Lord Jesus and the apostles. So it's a little bit hard to understand that um, if this is speaking about the ultimate coming of the Lord Jesus in power and glory at the end of the age. So here's another reading of these verses. Um, see, see what you think. Okay, um, this is from uh, R.T. France, who wrote a big commentary on the Gospel of Mark, which has helped me a lot. Um, and this is uh, what he suggests. Um, first of all, there's some things which you, you can't argue with. Um, first of all, he talks about how the prophets actually spoke in the Old Testament. What is the prophetic mode of speaking? And um, I don't remember what examples he used, but I think a good example is Isaiah 13. Now, Isaiah chapter 13 is one of the oracles of doom upon the nations. In particular, it's an oracle of doom against Babylon. Now, if you know the book of Daniel well, you'll know how Babylon comes to an end. It's brought down by Darius the Mede, right? You know that about halfway through the book of Daniel. So the Babylon is brought to an end by Darius. And if you read Isaiah 13, you'll see that that's what it's talking about, prophesying. But the language which Isaiah uses is amazing. Isaiah 13 verse 10, he says, The stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. He says, The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. He says in verse 13, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the earth will remove out of its place. And he's only talking about the destruction of Babylon. He's not just talking about the end of the universe. And I think you can find other examples in the Old Testament of this sort of exalted prose that the prophets use. 
You see, the prophets in the Old Testament, I think you'll agree with me, they're usually speaking to their contemporaries. Yes, they do foretell the future sometimes, but it's just the, you know, it's just the near future which is relevant to those who hear them. But they use language which is appropriate for the end of the age. And, and that's what, one of the things which makes it exciting and interesting to study for us. So, if Babylon is described in these, let's say, apocalyptic terms with these cosmological signs, the destruction of Babylon is described that way, how much more destruction of the temple of all things? How much more does it deserve to be described in this sort of exalted and terrifying language of the end of the age? And then, if that's very dark and gloomy, you know, all the light goes down, the rising sun's darkened, the moon doesn't give its light, and the very stars of heaven fail, the powers of heaven are shaken in verse 25, then the next verse is much more full of light and glory and hope, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Well, surely that's um, speaking about the, what we would call the second coming of the Lord. But R.T. France says, no, no, not so fast. And uh, he gives this really interesting verse in Matthew 26, verse 64. In Matthew 26, the Lord Jesus is standing before the priestly caste and he's on trial. And I think it's the high priest himself who says to Jesus, I adjure you by God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. And then he says something really interesting. Jesus says, and from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's a really intriguing answer, isn't it? In the trial of the Lord Jesus. Not in some distant day. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It, it's uh, an interesting verse. But I think it means, you know just how Gamaliel said, if this is not of God, it will come of nothing, come to nothing. But it, it certainly didn't come to nothing. You know, the gospel went out, the gospel was effective, the Lord Jesus was exalted. There was abundant proof that the Lord Jesus was sitting on the right hand of God, that he was Lord, that God had made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And his glory was seen in the conversion of the Gentiles. And then he says in verse 27, And he will send his angels out to gather together the elect from the four winds, from the uttermost parts of the earth to the uttermost parts of heaven. Well, um, in his early days, apparently, R.T. France had the idea that um, angels, um, well, angels are just messengers. And in this great um, demonstration that the Lord Jesus truly is Lord, truly is enthroned, truly is glorified, the angels, the apostles and the other evangelists going out into the world and gathering in the elect from the four corners of heaven. That's an interesting idea. 
And then later on he changed his mind and said, no, no, maybe it's not the apostles, maybe it's the angels as we normally understand them. And he quotes Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14. Are they not ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them who shall be heirs of salvation? And they are gathering in the elect. Now, if, um, if that's the interpretation of these verses, it makes uh, verse um, 30 um, easier to understand. The Lord Jesus saying, Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. And indeed that's true, isn't it, in the, in the lifetime of those who were alive when the Lord Jesus said that. The temple would be destroyed. The walls would be brought down. Now, I imagine that um, a lot of you here tonight, and maybe I could say this myself, I find that interpretation of verses 24 to 31 a bit lumpy. You know, it's, it's, not, what, it's not the way we usually read it. Um, it's, as I say, I got it from this commentary from a man called R.T. France. I think it's a, it's a reasonable commentary. Um, it's just interesting, you know, to see the efforts that people have made to make a sense of this chapter and how to try and iron out um, the various lumps that there are. But, you know, maybe there's another way of thinking about it. Could it be, you know when you lay a carpet, you've got the, the nice carpet on top, frequently there's an underfelt, isn't there, that goes under the carpet, and uh, they're both cut, and they both, they both fit quite nicely. Could it be that when the Lord Jesus is speaking in the Olivet Discourse, could it be that in some way he is simultaneously answering the two questions? I don't know what you think about that, but I'm just wondering about it myself. Do we necessarily always have to say, this verse is fulfilled at this point of time, and that's it? Or could there be a kind of what you could call a multivalency if you're a chemist? There must be at least one chemist here. You know, could there be more than one layer of meaning to the Word of God? I think just because it's the Word of God, there could be. You know, you look at all those, uh, Alison was saying this to me the other day, when you look at the Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus, when they were first given all those years ago, people didn't necessarily think this is going to be about the Messiah in the future. Not necessarily, not all of them. But in process of time it became clear that, yeah, they had an immediate application to the people who heard it in the days of Isaiah or whoever, and then another fuller, grander, better, more glorious one when the Lord Jesus came the first time. So it could be, you know, that we could read a chapter like this and we could see more layers of meaning and layers of interpretation and benefit from them. The great verse, though, verse 31, the Lord Jesus says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. Um, Let's, um, let's finish with um, the light. Oh, well, it is, just let me say that um, there is some historical evidence that when uh, Titus came with his armies and besieged Jerusalem, and when the Christians of Jerusalem saw them sacrificing to their standards, they remembered the words of the Lord Jesus.
and they fled to the mountains and they were saved you know so there was a real practical application to the words of the Lord um, but let's finish shall we with verses um, 32 uh, to the end of the chapter and a uh, little title for this one uh, that day um, compared with those days now let's read the verses but of that day and that hour knows no man no not the angels which are in heaven neither the son but the father take ye heed watch and pray for ye know not what the time, when the time is for the son of man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. Now, whatever our opinion about the previous section, I think in this last bit, um, unequivocally, the Lord is talking about his second coming in the way that we normally understand it. And there's a couple of clues about that. First of all, there's a change in language. Verse 32, he speaks about that day. Previously in the chapter, he has always spoken about those days. If you look at verse 17, Woe to them that are with child, woe to them that nurse children in those days. And then you have it again in verse 20. And except the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. And verse 24, in those days after that tribulation, the sun should be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And the other cosmological signs. Those days, those days, those days. But now in verse 32 there's a change in language. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man. Now here's another contrast previously in the previous section there was a clue as to timing it's in verse 30 this generation will not pass until all these things be done in this section there is no clue about timing of that day and that hour no one knows not even the angels it says in this intriguing verse neither the son but the father only it's like the Lord Jesus said you know in, in um, in uh, the Acts chapter 1 when the disciples said Lord are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now and he said it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the father has fixed by his own authority similarly here only the father knows now um, it's a pity that this verse is sometimes used to teach a low Christology a low verse of Christ and I had planned to say something about that but we could talk about it later if you want I don't think I have time to go into it just now let us just say that in the mystery of the economy of God in the incarnation uh, not even the sun knows that uh, day or hour but we are to take heed and watch and pray and work because we don't know what the time is but you notice in this last little section something quite interesting I think um, we started off with the temple being left desolate 
And the Lord Jesus, at the end of Matthew 23, said, Your house is left unto you desolate. That's a, that's a harsh word. Like it's no longer God's house. It's no longer the house it was ever meant to be. He says, Your house is left unto you desolate. But here there's another house, and it's not described as your house. It's described as his house, the Son of Man's house. The Son of Man is like, he's like a man taking a far journey. He left his house and he left it in order. He didn't leave it desolate. He left it with a porter to watch. He left it with servants who every single one of them had their own work to do while he was away, waiting for him coming again. And uh, that's us, isn't it? Aren't we the house today? And, you know, that big 500 ton, 40 foot long foundation stone we're built on something more solid than that the Lord Jesus Christ himself he is the foundation stone on which a great temple is being built for the Lord the church of God and not only is he the foundation stone he's the chief cornerstone the stone that the builders rejected he's now on high he's now glorified more bright and more glorious by far than the chief cornerstone on the pinnacle of the temple, even if it is clad in marble, even if it is shining in gold. Greater far the Lord Jesus, foundation and chief cornerstone of the new building. And so, brothers and sisters, we are left with this work to do. Everyone is given their own work. Everyone is to be watching and waiting and working for the Lord and he finishes up by saying to his disciples you know he says what I said to you I say to everyone watch we don't know when he's coming back but I think that I think what we do get um, is the doctrine of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus no sign to be fulfilled first he could come back for us any day now, I hope this has been, been helpful. Um, it might get some discussion going. Um, I'll let you know that I'm wearing my reading glasses. I can't see your faces very well. So I, I really, I, I really quite hard to judge just uh, what you made of some of these ideas, especially the ones from RT France. Uh, if you want a big, meaty commentary on, the, on Mark, you know, it's quite a good one to get. Um, maybe a little bit kind of textual criticism a bit more than, than than you feel totally comfortable with you know but full of good ideas all the same um, let's just close in prayer shall we our father we do thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ we thank you that not only is he king not only is he priest but he also spoke while he was here as a prophet we thank you that his words will never pass away and we do thank you, our Father, that the words of the Lord Jesus are so much greater and so much more wonderful than we can comprehend. And Father, we pray that you would forgive us for the times when we, as it were, force and, and push and try to make his words things, his words mean what they maybe don't mean. Lord, give us receptive hearts, give us understanding minds. Above all, Lord, fill us with a great love and admiration for our Lord Jesus. And Father, we do pray that you would help us in this time while he's 
away from us on this far journey as it were into another country a heavenly one Father we pray that you would help us to watch and to work and to stay awake until he comes for we ask it in his precious name and for his sake Amen